Welcome to Enneagram Plus Yoga, a podcast for the body, heart, and mind. And we have with us today Indra Rensler. He reached out to us about being on the podcast. And when we saw his website and how knowledgeable he is about the Enneagram, we said, yes, we would love to have him on the show. And we're so glad we did because like a typical Enneagram 7, he was so much fun. Um, we just had a great time talking with him. But yeah, he is a master of the Enneagram and astrology, and you can do a uh, reading with him if that's something that interests you. Um, but I know that listening to his story and his wisdom on the Enneagram will benefit you and bless you. So thanks for joining us. We're so glad you're here. We appreciate you listening. All right. Well, welcome to Enneagram Plus Yoga. Thank you for having me, Christy. I'm very happy to be here. Yeah, we're so excited. And you're in California. Can you tell our listeners where you are in California? So they I'm can... in yeah. I'm in the foothills of California between Sacramento and Tahoe up in uh, the forest. Uh, been getting a lot of rain. We sometimes have to worry about forest fires, but it's a a beautiful place to be. Blue skies, quiet. Wow. What's the temperature where you are right now? Uh, 43. Oh, you know, okay. we, we had 31 this morning. We're at 43. We'll maybe get to 60. Okay. Got it. Got it. Well, it sounds beautiful to be in the foothills of California. So that gives everybody an image of where you are. But again, welcome yeah, to beautiful. Plus Yoga. And um, <laughs> we know that you know a lot about Enneagram and yoga. And so uh, we're really excited to have you. Um, and so I just wanted uh, to start out by just inviting you to share anything that might surprise our listeners about you. What's something that might surprise them? Well, you you mentioned uh, yoga, so I thought that I would tell you that uh, the first time I did yoga was at the bottom of the Grand Canyon in June of 1972. Wow, that had to be beautiful. So you walked down. I walked down and uh, I suppose I'd taken a book that I was studying at the time and it was, I, I, I felt empty enough to, uh, to try my hand at this yoga stuff. And uh, I may have meditated too for the first time. I don't remember. It was a couple of years ago, but uh, June 1972 at the bottom of the Grand Canyon. I haven't been back I haven't been to the bottom since. I've been to the top one time, I think, since then. Mm -hmm. 50-year yoga practice. That's pretty impressive. That's something to shoot for, for sure. Yeah. Well, I haven't done yoga. I mean, um, uh, I haven't done the yoga, you know, every day since then. But uh, I have been focused on the spiritual path. Uh, from that time and even a little bit before. Uh, the other fact I wanted to share with you is that um, I've been to 56 countries and I uh, traveled. Um, I was out of the U.S. in the winter 
out of my lovely forest from 98, only one winter in the US since 98, from 98 till 2020, when uh, I got back from Thailand uh, a day or two before California and Thailand closed from COVID. And I haven't been on a plane since. And, uh, you know, now I'm starting to feel maybe it's coming up, but I haven't really felt the need to go anywhere. I, I really have enjoyed slowing down. But before that, I had traveled every winter but one, uh, mostly to Asia, always to Asia. And I spent a lot of winters in India. I was at a, I was an importer for many years, uh, handicraft items. So I would travel anywhere I could, anywhere I wanted to go that I could buy handicrafts that I would bring back to the U.S. and sell. Wow. Wow. What's your favorite place that you visited? Well, you know, favorite is is not something I get into, but when everybody asks me those questions, two of the most memorable places that I've been to was Mongolia, uh, which was uh, ancient and deep, mm -hmm. and and Ethiopia, which was even even more ancient and even deeper. And mm -hmm. I remember coming into Ethiopia, Ethiopia and thinking this place is a pit, uh, Addis Ababa, and uh, it reminded me of Haiti, which was one of the more uh, depressing places I've ever been to, very, very difficult place. And I come to realize in Ethiopia that it isn't that it hadn't been there, it's that it's already been there for thousands and thousands of years and that it took me a little bit to slow down to realize the power that's in that place they they say that when the and I don't know if this is a true story but they say it anyways that the ark of the covenant when they got it to Egypt and they wondered where they could hide it that they looked to the Nile and they thought the headwaters and it so happens that the headwaters of the Nile are in the highlands of Ethiopia which I didn't get up to but um and so they put it there and so the it, it was it's a magical place uh and uh, a very deep people uh that um belay we might belaying what we might think about uh, a place that doesn't have uh, the civilization it doesn't seem to have the civilization that we're used to what did you like about mongolia so Mongolia, the thing is, is that, 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 uh, well, Genghis Khan, you know. Oh, I know Mon all about it. I'm born and raised in Russia. So just a little, little fun fact. So Russians okay. were all blue eyed and blonde haired for centuries and centuries, just like Vikings. And then a little thing happened, which in Russia we call Mongolian ego, where Mongolians, Genghis Khan, invaded Russian lands for a hundred years from beginning to the end. And that is what um, a lot of people attribute to Russians now having green eyes and dark hair because Mongolians ruled Russian, Russian lands for a hundred years. So it's, it's an interesting country. I'm curious to find out it's completely has nothing to do with yoga and Enneagram. We'll get to that, but <laughs> tell me what you liked about Mongolia. So the thing about Mongolia is, is that I think that Genghis Khan was was pretty much understood. You know, the fact is, is that he did rule the largest empire that the world had ever known. But right. they developed 
they had no language. They had no written language. And he was an incredible master at developing the this the, and seeing the skills that everybody had, all the different countries had. And 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 he uh, what do you call it? You know, he 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 brought he brought the the wisdom of of the Middle East to to India and to China. And he brought the Chinese herbs and the intelligence back to the Middle East. And he brought it from Russia down to India. And uh, they had a, a postal system where uh, in 1300, where they could, or 1200, that they could bring a letter 2000 miles in 10 days. And so it was a very high culture, even though it wasn't particularly civilized. He used the Buddhist to 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 do the writing because he didn't know how to do that. They didn't have any cities. They didn't have a religion other than their shamanism. And so when I went there, they have this uh, summer festival every year. And the year I was there, they were celebrating the 800th anniversary, I think it was, of the unification of Mongolia. And they go into a stadium and they do the cards and the horses and the cheerleaders. Mm -hmm. It's incredible uh, energy. And then they have these flags these this uh they they like they throw it in the ground with the flags and it's like their their spirit their spirit guide and it, it's like it's a tremendously deep uh whenever uh, uh he needed to whenever uh genghis khan needed to make a uh, get a solution he would go to the the three rivers and he would sit there and he would pray until he had a a, a realization and so uh, i mean a uh uh, uh, you know, intuition told him what he needed to do. And so I found it again, I look beyond, you know, the, the, the Russian, you know, the Russians uh, invaded Mongolia too. They were in control of Mongolia and they killed all of the, they, they, they burnt all the temples, all the mm -hmm. Buddhist temples and, and the architecture. There mm -hmm. is not, you know, it's Russian architecture. It's not known for its its beauty, but underneath there's a spirit of the Mongolian people that I found to be uh, uh, very spiritual and very deep. And and considering the life that they have, the temperatures in the winter and the kind of life that they had under, you know, the retribution for what they what their forefathers mm -hmm. did do mm -hmm. um i found it to be a rather amazing place so is that uh you know can you relate to that understand that yes very much so you know it's it's very interesting um you know coming from a place that has a really long history and the history that we thought we learned you know centuries 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 worth but the truth goes with the history said by winners of the wars. So I'm yeah. very certain that what we have learned about Mongolian, Mongolian uh, culture um, was not the whole truth and how things got handled and, you know, what, as you said, the retribution after wronging the, you know, the, the, the Rus land. Um, I do think that, you know, and in, in Russia does neighbor a lot of Asian countries. So Mongolia, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Turkmenistan, Georgia, all of those countries, they have such rich cultures just, but, but because they were so small, they kind of got eaten up, swallowed and crushed underneath the bear's paw of Russia. And of course, if you're sort of crushing, you know, a culture down, you, 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 you put your stamp on whatever they have, which is a shame because 
the culture, the history, the, the, the food, the, you know, all of the things are so exquisitely unique and beautiful, but I don't think we learned a lot of it. Although I would tell you that Russia did absorb a lot of their culture and a lot of, you know, from, from the food to traditions, to shamanism, to uh, being, um, superstitious and you know like all of those things elements they, they they bled in and they are still there to this day yes you know i would uh, the thing about russia that i i like to say is we don't really we think of russia as the big bear but the fact is is that the new age movement kind of started in russia that uh, mm -hmm. madame blavatsky and, and yes. her chief yes you know yes. i mean there there yes. there's a homespun spiritualism i mean i've never been there but uh, there's a homespun spiritualism that is part of the russian culture right and that we we've, we've gained a lot from that that we don't uh, that most people don't think about mm -hmm. I agree. Yeah, we talked about gurjeev um on the podcast yet because we're just kind of introducing people to the enneagram and yet I think he's really important. I mean, he's the founder of the modern Enneagram. Um, and I, I would love, he also integrated movement into the Enneagram. Could you speak to who he is so our listeners could just know a little bit about him? He was an Armenian Russian. And I'd love to hear what, what you would like to impart to us about him. Well, it's it's kind of interesting because uh, in the in the uh, late '60s and the '70s, uh, he was a very important part of our uh, spiritual growth and spiritual movement. That his um, there was a his mo a movie came out called uh, the Meetings with Remarkable Men at the time, which was one of his books. And so we we learned about him. And so as we were growing up spiritually, he was part of our knowledge and movement uh but the thing is is that when i when i do podcasts and i mention his name to 30s and 40s and 50s most of them have never heard of him uh, which is okay you know but the thing is is that that i like to think that that madame blavatsky went to india in 1840s and 50s and to imagine her with her big hoop skirts and her big body traveling around india she brought astrology back to the west and it was the beginning and and she, and and he Gurdjieff came out of the same same energy, the same uh, you know maybe not exactly the same tradition. She started the Theosophical Society in 1875 in New York. He started teaching. He was he was first known in in Saint Petersburg in 1916, uh, probably born around 1870. And so he was also a different generation. But it was certainly from my point of view, it was the it was the beginning he taught in in paris in the he moved to paris in the 1920s and he and he ended up dying i believe he died there uh he taught in paris the 20s 30s and 40s and uh, he died there in 1948 so so he he is considered the father of the enneagram he wouldn't tell us whether the diagram was his or whether he got it from somebody else. Um, he never really explained it. He taught in mysteries. He was an Enneagram aide. And so he he wanted to be in control. And he um, he used to, we would hear the stories of that he would rent people to disrupt the, the, the meetings. And mm -hmm. why did he do that? Because he wanted to test the people. He wanted to put them under a, 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 a 
uh, test their energy, test their endurance, test their 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 uh, their beliefs. And so he'd he'd bring people in in order to disrupt the meetings. And so, uh, you know, later on we'd say, well, if we didn't have her, we'd have to rent her. You know, if she, you know, so because spiritual groups need stirring up you know that the the teachers stir people up in order to get them to grow that's how we grow so so mm -hmm. he he um he not only i mean the enneagram was only part of what he taught he he taught a a, a, a spiritual philosophy uh, the, that uh, I'm not really up on it, but I would say that you know the idea of, of that we're uh, that we're limited, that we're boxed in by our philosophies and 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 thinking. And he he taught in ways that we really couldn't understand in the 1920s. The people couldn't really understand. They were very new ideas and and things now that i mean like again if i use the word karma everybody understands the word karma and i use in my readings i say to people well we're going to go from essence to essence and people i say do you understand and say sure you know no matter where people come from they can understand that but in 1920 these kinds of ideas were very new and not really understood mm -hmm. so um is that you will you have yeah. other questions and he did. I mean, like a good teacher, he would push people out of their comfort zone. And I think he also imparted the three intelligences. So even though the Enneagram is very different now than the Enneagram he taught, you know, this idea of the body, heart, and mind was really integral to the, the Enneagram that he taught. And there is still a lot of mystery surrounding the history of the Enneagram and exactly where you know, he got the symbol and whatnot. We don't, um, you know, a lot of people will say that this is the story, but I've heard so many that it's hard, it's hard to know. Um, but yeah, he, he's definitely. Uh, ultimately, it doesn't really matter. No, no. But I yeah. do want to say that, that his, his, uh, his work and his students work all had Enneagram and astrology together. Yeah. That's and it and it was with the beginning of the Enneagram of Personality, which when we call Enneagram, we're really talking about the Enneagram of Personality that was started in the in the late 60s, early uh, 70s. There was no astrology in it. And so I am sort of the lone wolf by bringing astrology and doing astrology and Enneagram together. I'm sort of the lone wolf because nobody who does the Enneagram of Personality, they don't see it together mm -hmm. but all of um Gurdjieff's students there's a famous example in the search of the story in the search of the miraculous that he's there he's working walking with the disciples one day and he and they're talking about astrology and he suddenly stops and he drops his cane and eventually somebody picks it up and hands it back to him. And then he says, that was astrology. And so he says, well, what did you think? Well, one said, um, I was thinking about what you said and I didn't see you drop the cane. And another one said, I saw you drop the cane and then I saw so-and-so pick it up and I, I didn't do anything. And another one thought, I saw you drop the cane and I know you did it on purpose and I was wondering what it was. So everybody was coming from their own story. And then he says, well, that's what, astrology when you really understand astrology i have no idea what he was saying but when you really understand astrology then you understand that is astrology and so this is this is a story that um that was reported in search of the miraculous uh 
Ostensky's book about uh, Gurdjieff, and 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 he even at the end of the book just sort of doodled with the nine points, and he puts the seven known planets at the point at at seven of the nine points, and he said, "Well, I don't really have the books here or the time to understand it, but it's here's something I was thinking about." And and so it was it was part of it from the beginning, and that's actually been lost. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. I did not know that. I didn't know that Gurdjieff had a love for both astrology and the Enneagram. So that's a new nugget, and thank you for that. Sure. <laughs> I love it too. We're always very fascinated by astrology. We've had uh, quite a few guests who are really into astrology and. We always admire it from afar because we know very little, but it is fascinating. But let me ask you about Enneagram. So could you share with our listeners your Enneagram number and how you came about, um, you know, falling in love with Enneagram? So 50 years ago, yoga practice started. Now, what was <laughs> the starting point for the Enneagram? So... Uh... I, I, in 1999, I was, uh, a friend had suggested that I go to an Enneagram class. Now, I had never heard of Enneagram, but they suggested that I go to this weekend class up in uh, Oregon. So I went to it and I was immediately taken with it. And um, I immediately saw, felt a connection to, um, astrology, because I'd already started studying at the same time at the bottom of the Grand Canyon, I had already started with astrology and spirituality. Mm -hmm. And, and so um, I ended up finding uh, a teacher who had intuited a system. So I, so my question, my burning question was, how do they work together? What is, what is the nature of their working together? And I, and I drew to me a very enlightened man who, um, who, uh, by the way, I'm a seven. If you haven't figured it out already, I'm. A You're seven. so pleasant, and you know I'm married to a seven. And you were talking, I'm like, he has such a lovely energy about you. And then you <laughs> said you've been to so many countries, and I thought, hmm, yeah, that really does sound like he loves adventure, and I'm, I know one like that too. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so I, he, my teacher said, I found one of three people who knew where he was because he was a hermit, a nine hermit. He said, I, I, I met one of three people, also a seven, who knew where he was and what he did. And so he explained to me the, how the Enneagram and astrology work together, how we can see the, the, the point being how, what is a seven? What is a one? What does a two look like astrologically? And there are markers for each of the points in order to be able to distinguish. Uh, he could do 85% of the charts. I don't think I can do that high, but if you give me a chart, I, I might have a good guess about what their Enneagram is. And if you tell me what your Enneagram is and you show me your chart, I can tell you why you know, why that Enneagram comes up, because there are differences. It's not a simple one-to-one. -one. Most people want to make it a one-to-one, -one, you know, uh, Mars is a two or an eight and moon is a two and, and Saturn is a one, but it doesn't work that way. We're much more complicated than that. There's a series of markers that we look for and, and it isn't clear in every case, but in 90%, uh, 85% of the cases, it's, it's pretty clear why, one person, uh, one why one chart uh, will lead to a certain particular enneagram. 
both. Yeah. Well, can I just jump in and, and ask a question about the astrology? I'll just going to hog all the questions and then I'll, <laughs> I'm going to let go. All right. Let's talk astrology because, and we're completely going off, off script here, but I grew up in a country that is all into astrology. We even have astrology as a part of your high school curriculum. It's, you know, you study wow. chemistry, you study physics, you study biology, you study astrology. Wow. Uh, it, it's not, it's not a maybe, maybe not. It, it's just a part of science. So anyhow, I know that you're very well versed in Vedic astrology. So what parallels do you see between Enneagram and astrology? And I know you've touched a little bit on it. And I think a lot of times people just want to make a connection and want to make things fit in because it's a little simpler that way. And to your point, just like with Enneagram, it's much more complex than just I'm a perfectionist. I like perfect things and that's my box and I'm going to sit in it forever. You know, so talk to us a little bit about astrology. Okay, I'm going to do that, but I just want to comment that I mean for some people that's that's their level of astrology or their enneagram or their relationships or their life that it's just a box and it's very simple. So yeah. that's that's okay if that's where you're at, you know. So the thing is, is that the 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 figures actually look alike. That they're 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 both based on on mathematical energy. They're both they're both uh, have ancient roots, even though the enneagram of personality is rather new, and the enneagram is possibly new and possibly not. It fits so well in with the ancient uh, Greeks, and and when you look at the um, the the um, the Muslim world buildings with the repeating patterns that you see, that is, you know, that is, they have a tremendous geometric, uh, uh, sacred geometry to their, to their culture. And so it fits in with um, um, uh, Enneagram and astrology. I mean, because the astrology was so important to them now. So the, the Enneagram is made up of three geometric shapes, the circle, the, the triangle, the law of three and the, and the hexag, which I like to say looks like a fancy Staples paperclip. Uh, it's so there are three geometric shapes. And of course the astrology chart is, is round and has houses and has, if you put in the aspects, there's lines, you know, connecting the points. So, so they're very similar that way. Um, the when you look at if you do an array of the enneagram with the enneagram point in the first column, the second column the uh, the instinct, anger, emotion, and fear, and the third column um, the, dire the the direction energy comes from outward, the extroverts, mm -hmm. uh, uh, two, seven, and eight. Uh, inward, the introverts, uh, uh, one, four, and five, and the and the middle path, the neutral path, the actively neutral path, three, six, and nine. That's very similar to the signs. The signs being the first array, the elements being the second elements and instincts. Not very different. Fire, mm -hmm. earth, air, and water. Yeah. Uh, anger, emotion, and fear, kind of really similar. And then the uh, the uh, modality, uh, the uh, cardinal uh, initiative energy, uh, uh, fixed energy, which is uh, mundane energy, and then mutable, which is changeable energy. That's very similar to me uh, to the... Um, uh, 
the outward, inward, and neutral. You, mm -hmm. you understand what I'm saying? Yes. Don't you think it would be glorious to connect Ayurvedic um, theory in there as well? Speaking of the elements, the fire, the ether, the water, and how all of that is interconnected. We might just send you off a, like with, with a task, with a challenge. Well, Threat, I... That you know, the thing is that they're, you know, they're, they both have triads. I mean, uh, Enneagram is full of triads. Astrology is full of triads. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so, and the, and the Ayurveda, the, the, the Gunas and all that, they're all mm -hmm. triads too. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I mean, I've looked at it a little bit. It isn't particularly my interest or direction. The, re the reason the Vedic astrology, I don't believe that you can see it in the in the uh, tropical Western chart, that the the difference between Western astrology and Vedic astrology, the astrology is isn't all that different. I mean, the Westerners don't agree with Western, and the Vedic don't agree with Vedic. And so, if the Western and the Vedic don't agree, that's just part of astrology. I don't know if they taught you that in high school, but it's no. just part of it's just part of astrology. But the thing is, is that the, the, the sidereal chart, which is cast 24 degrees earlier right now, the two systems were the same in 400 AD, which is when this whole thing started. But because of the procession of the equinox, the, 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 um, the sun is not in the same place every year, that the Western astrology bases the chart on the relationship between the earth and the sun, which is the seasons. And so the season, so the, uh, so so Aries one, Aries zero is the same every year, March 21st. But when you take into account the earth and then the sun and then the sky behind the sun, the sky behind the sun isn't the same and it doesn't come back to the same place for 26,000 years. And so in Vedic astrology, we take in sidereal or star time. And, and so it moves um, every every 72 years it moves one degree and it happens to move backwards and so the kicker is is that when when western astrologers say hold on it's a full moon in leo the chances are that if you look at it astronomic astronomically that this the moon would actually be in cancer not leo all right last question i'm going to let christy talk what is your astrological <laughs> sign what is my which sign what is your astrological sign? What sign? So, so in, in sidereal, I am a uh, uh, Sagittarius rising and a Sagittarius moon. And I have a uh, Gemini. I moved from Cancer to Gemini for my son. Are, so you, December, in opposition. are you December baby? December birthday? No, I'm in no. July. I'm a, I'm a full moon baby. Okay. Huh. Cool. Okay, Christy, you talk. <laughs> also interesting and um i was just thinking too we might talk a little bit later about the deadly sins and the virtues for each of the nine numbers and um it's interesting like that power of nine that's been like talked about earlier is it an ancient tool is it a modern tool but whether like we're talking about kabbalah or christianity or even you know the idea that maybe it came from the Sufi mystics. There, there has been this power of nine and all these traditions. And I can even remember hearing a story when I was in seminary about there being nine deadly sins originally. And then I don't remember if it was Pope Gregory or which Pope it was 
that decided that he didn't like two of them. <laughs> so there became the seven deadly sins, but actually the person who would come up with the deadly sins, there were nine to begin with. And you actually brought up the point that I wanted to bring up. You're, you're incredibly intuitive. Here we are again. So the thing is, is that I talked about what they have in common, that they're both mandalas and they're powerful figures uh, based on real forces. And uh, the, the, the thing they have in common is that we can see the Enneagram in astrology. And I don't understand why the world doesn't think that that isn't uh, the, the the hottest new sliced bread. That I don't understand. But that doesn't—that's uh, not the important point. But well, how are they different? Well, uh, Enneagram is based on nine, and and astrology is based on twelve. So the question is, are they the same or different? And so the answer is, is is that they are both mathematical frequencies, but they're different frequencies. And so they have a, a different energy associated with them. Uh, uh, interestingly enough, of course, nine is, is three times three and 12 is three times four. So they both have three in there. At neighborhood, uh, house, fam their family, their house, their car. They're not looking at their neighbors, let alone their greater community. If they take a bus, they, they think in terms of greater community. And then if you get on an international plane, you, you realize 56 countries, I realize that people are the same everywhere. And that this, that this idea of having a passport that you, you show to get into another country, that the borders are, are illusions, that, that the people are the same on either side. And I remember having a huge laugh uh, taking a bus into Singapore from Malaysia, reading about Malaysia. Uh, Singapore is actually an island. You have to take a bridge to go, go over a bridge to get there. That that uh, Lonely Planet told me that the Singaporeans and the Malaysians have never gotten along. They were enemies. There they were, you know, living together in the same place. And their nature was to be, you know, we're the island people and stay away from us and, and have uh, have uh, historical uh uh, you know, uh, disregard for each other. And it just, it just it makes, makes me laugh, you know, in a sense of uh, the light and it, stay, keeping it light that this is, this is the human way and, and not to take it so personal or to be um, affected by it. Yeah. And, and even though the tribalism is the human way, I think the Enneagram pulls us back to but hey, we're here to try to see one another, to not say it's my way or the highway, but to say that there's many different paths to the same place and that can we see the goodness and light and beauty in all nine types and, you know, whether we're in North Ireland or in the Republic of Ireland, like, can we see one another? And the Enneagram, I think, helps us to do that and so um that's well the enneagram can help us to do that but it can just as easily be another barrier that people put up and and so it yeah. isn't in the enneagram it's actually in the it's in our own attitude it's in our own freedom it's in our own uh, attitude to to what we do and what we don't do that that has the freedom because you can take anything and you can make it restricted I love that. I love that. Yeah, because we can become dogmatic about whatever it is, whether it's religion or whether we're talking about the Enneagram, that we can use it as a system to say they're good and, and they're bad. And, and that's very dangerous. Now, the Enneagram does help us to see that we are thinking that they're good and they're bad. It helps us to, to help us define things. Yeah. 
And so it helps us to understand that that when we when we get to that point of view, that we can realize that we're making this judgment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, I know you're, I want to transition a little bit. I know I just want to learn more about your life. And I know you're a deeply spiritual person and that you made a conscious choice to live in an ashram in California. And you were there for, for over 20 years, raised your kids there. That's just a huge decision. I want to hear about that decision, what led you to that and how that was transformational for you maybe it was hard at times it had to be hard just tell me a little bit about that experience well this this goes back away so uh one of the first spiritual books that i that i read was uh the autobiography of a yogi by paramahansa yogananda and it so happened that there was a di direct disciple of his that that his focus was on community, that Yogananda had made a speech one time uh, talking about what he called World Brotherhood Colonies, the idea that we were going to need to, in order to survive, in order to grow, that if we lived in community, we could support each other. Communities being... Um, uh, like-minded people living together, sharing together on a piece of land, you know, not, not, we're not talking about your neighborhood community. Well, you can, it has the same ideals, but it isn't, this was a specific idea. And again, in, in the late sixties and early seventies, communities were, were a huge, um, uh, growth area was one of the, the way, the new ways of being, and they're, and they're still kind of, uh growing and oh, uh, people are uh living in community and wanting to live in community and developing communities so it hasn't really changed in 50 years and so so it ended up that we went to visit this community and uh then we went twice a year then we went four times a year and we became a, a center leader and we, we we brought people to the that particular path and then eventually we moved there when we were pregnant with the second child, it became 79, it became time to move there. And, um, you know, the community was, uh, the, uh, the ashram was, uh, was a place uh, we learned a lot. Uh, obviously, it was about, it was mostly about learning discipleship, which is uh, learning about the spiritual path, learning what to be, what it's like to be a disciple, what it's like to have a master. Um, the 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 type the type of dedication and sincer uh, sincerity that you need and the qualities that you want to develop and it was a learning experience when we butted heads which of course we did and um, you know people got quote spun off and uh, and left uh, they may not have left the path they may have left the community that the the community and the path aren't really the same though they look like they're the same and um, it was uh, we raised our kids there and then at the time that the kids were kind of grown and out of the house uh, things had changed and we had changed and uh, I ended up uh, we ended up uh, separating Mm -hmm. with my wife and uh and then learned about the enneagram and mm -hmm. uh started started traveling and um the uh, ashram life i ran into a fellow yesterday you know i don't run into too many uh, people well i live in the uh, same town but it's but it's a 
not that it's a big town, but at other ends. But I ran it. I went. My my wife, my new wife, is away. Not so new, but newish, newer wife is away. And so I went to the grocery store, and boom! I ran into a guy that took over the the retreat facility from me. Uh, he they, they they let us go, and they brought in a team. And this guy is still sitting, probably a five. He's still he's still at the same desk that he had 1987, 35 years. He's still sitting at the same desk. And, uh, you know, I just was amazed, uh, not so much for him, but just 35 years, he's still there. And it's it's beautiful, but it's not, it wasn't my path anymore. I had, I had internal reasons, I suppose, that I had to leave. I call it graduation. I, I just, needed to do other things. I needed to learn other sides of myself. I, I think I wanted to travel and I had put it off and it was time and, and other things were going on, other things that needed to be learned. It was, um, it, you know, you can have expansion in smallness, but you can also have smallness and smallness. And so to bring expansion to to a focused thing was difficult. They were really, you know, really the, this, if you were in a, uh, what did you say, a seminary, you know about that it's a particular path that they're trying to teach you and they don't want you chewing gum mm -hmm. and skipping at the same time. So, so this is the nature of the spiritual path. This is the nature of, of I, I like to talk about one of the lessons I learned there that I talk about is centralization and decentralization. I saw a lot of different cycles that you go from the letting people figure it out on their own to bringing back this the power into a more centralized so we can control it and it's i think the nature of it is because again astrology cycles are important summer winter this is this is nature is that we go from centralization to decentralization to centralization and so so you know what the pope just said that uh we shouldn't uh that that uh, homosexuality isn't the sin or isn't shouldn't be criminal I think is what he said whatever he said it isn't important but it's like the church can change things do change yeah. but Thank they you. but they may not in our lifetime and so so there's beauty in that that it doesn't change that that he still it is I can meet him in the grocery store and he's at the same desk at the same not the exact same job but teaching in the same facility and 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 some of us aren't and don't and that's okay either of those are, are good well and i mean i think you know it's very interesting because the five can be a very grounded personality you know very rooted um you know very committed to a space and place and you know the seven can be more adventurous but for a seven to be grounded in a spiritual community for over 20 years that's still pretty grounded. So, you know, but yeah, something in you said, you know, it's time for what's next. And um, not in a in a way that wasn't healthy. It was it was time to spread your wings and go somewhere else. And I think that that's and like you said, both are good. Like we can celebrate both. Uh, I love Absolutely. That. Yeah. Um, I wanted to share this this quote from from the mystic Thomas Merton. Um, I've always appreciated Thomas Merton, um, and he said this, he said, ask me what I am living for in detail, 
and ask me what I think is keeping me from living fully for the thing I want to live for. Um, so I want to ask you, just take that in for a moment. What are you living for? And the second part, what keeps you from living fully for the thing that you want to live for? Well, uh, you know, I wouldn't say that I'm living for any uh, physical plane achievements. You know, I've done my traveling. It doesn't mean I won't travel again. I have kids and grandkids, and so that's fine. I have a, a beautiful wife and a beautiful life. And uh, so what I'm living for isn't anything particular uh, achievement that way. It's just being in the moment. I think the spiritual practice is being in the moment. I think you let go of the, the idea of practice. I like to say on the mat and off the mat, you want to have that be the same, that it isn't about stretching up the wall. I love stretching up the wall in yoga and getting this going in here, but it isn't about that. It's about learning to stretch when you get into your physical, your physical play manifestations that your relatives, your neighbors, your, your kids, your mates, you know, your uh, co-workers, your bosses, it's be, it, learning to stretch in that. And so the process is living in the moment. The practice is stops being a practice. It's, it's, it's a, it's still a practice, but it's a lifestyle. It's a way of being, it's a, it's moment to moment um, of being present. Uh, that's my, you know, that's my Enneagram number story. And it's kind of the way that I, uh, the virtue of it and and that's the um that's what the practice has become and and so i'm not looking for a particular result i like when my team wins better than my team loses but i'm not looking for that particular result i'm just looking to experience whatever does happen and to be in the in the moment with it so i think that's so beautiful and one of the things that struck me about that is so often what we end up teaching and becoming passionate about is rooted in what our own Enneagram number needs to learn. And like for the seven to get in the present moment and to not have to think about, you know, all the things that are next and all the ideas, but to, to just be here now, that's powerful. And I think for me as a two, like, um, you know, the thing when I think about what I'm living for, it's to offer grace to myself and others to receive it from the divine. And that is something the two has to learn, especially the receiving grace piece, the, you know, the self-care piece. And I think that that's what I, what I teach a lot about is grace and self-care because it's the very thing that's so hard for me. And then for you to say that part of what you're living for is the present moment and how connected that is to your Enneagram number um, I don't know, that touched me somewhere in my spirit. So thank you. You're very welcome. I, I have a theory that we, we teach what we need to learn. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think that, uh, again, my approach is, is that grace just is, that it's not something that I give. It's not my power. It's not my wisdom. It, it's, it just is. And so I, I, I think the, the, the practice becomes getting yourself out of the way, that the becoming nothing. My teacher email was... Uh, no one, nobody. Now, again, he's a nine. So, you know, that was not unusual. But I mean, the, the whole, the practice of uh, the, 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 the people that I've seen are that uh, 
um, that are most memorable are the ones that there's there's no sense of I, there's no sense of doing, there's no sense of it's just the being and it's a total openness. Letting that ego go. I also love just to reinforce what you said about yoga. I love that you said that when you're stretching, that you know that's a good thing, but to create also that flexibility off the mat, that that's what it's really about, that that's what yoga is doing for us, that what we practice on the mat really becomes a spiritual practice. Indra, let me ask you, staying with the uh, subject of yoga, do you have a meditation practice? Uh, yes, I do. I do meditate uh, every day. Uh, what does that look like? What? It's just what? simple breathing. I've done you, a lot of things over the years. Uh, right. But at the moment, and, and I'm in a particularly inward period. I'm not a particularly... Uh, that will change, but right now, astrologically, I'm in a particularly inward period, and so just the breathing exercises is enough. Just, just to breathe through anything that it's it's a 24/7 surrendering mm -hmm. and releasing. It's it's never stops. It's it's not it's not that you know that the, there was a thought at the beginning that you might. Uh, uh, you know, surrender enough and you'd be done. But the, the reality that went, I don't know whether it went quickly or not, but at some point that left and, and, and surrendering and releasing is, a, is, is the path and, uh, and uh, not holding on to anything good or good or bad. And, and, and the whole idea of good or bad, I let go of that too. Mm -hmm. I'm going to ask about meditation and I'm going to pose it for our listeners, but Frankly, it's for me. So meditation, <laughs> <laughs> meditation has been my Achilles heel from the get-go. I struggle with it. I pick it up, I let it go, I pick it up, I let it go. I try it again. And so your advice for somebody who struggles with the darn few minutes a day of quiet seat, what is the path to have a successful and sustainable meditation practice? Well, I would let go of the idea of successful and sustainable. And I would I would stop thinking and I would, you know, achieve, you know, one minute, two minutes, three minutes, and then expand on it. And so you got to simplify it. There's too much mental stuff going on. I can feel it already. There's too much. It should be this. It should look like that. I should start with an hour and the right. You got to let go of the right way. You know, there is no right way. It just so is. Hard. So hard. <laughs> <laughs> that well, then, way is always right here. <laughs> well, it's hard because that's what you need to do. It's not hard. But the, But who says it's hard? Me. Yeah. And, you know, Kat's an Enneagram one. So I think we heard a lot of that in her question, right? Um, and how having a right way can get in the way, whether it's meditation or anything. Um, yeah. 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 Stay tuned for some meditative thoughts after this word from our sponsor. Instead of a guided meditation, this is an offering of some meditative thoughts. 
The poet Rimi said, if you are irritated by every rub, how will you ever be polished? And for the one, sometimes irritation is a struggle to accept imperfection. Imperfection in themselves and imperfection in others. But maybe that reminder, if you expect yourself and others to be perfect, you lose your joy and you don't grow and you don't get polished, can be a reminder to the one to let go of that irritation of imperfection. And for the two, often the irritation is wanting to be liked, wanting to feel accepted, wanting to feel seen by others. And often when the two learns to see and like themselves, then they find that they can let go of that irritation. And for the three, Sometimes the irritation is an irritation about other people's lethargy or laziness. Or sometimes they can even get irritated at themselves when they become a little bit like the nine and become a little lazy and lethargic. But if they can find rest and celebrate rest and see that as something sacred, it can really benefit them and they can grow and they can be polished. And for the four, sometimes they can get irritated by Pollyanna types, by people who are always sunny side up and grateful and positive, people who might seem a little bit superficial to the deep and introspective force. But if they can learn that actually there's a real gift in gratitude and joy and find balance between the pain of life and the joy of life, then they start to grow and be polished. So letting go of the irritation of the sunny side up personalities can really serve the four. For the five, sometimes the irritation for them is anybody who's touchy-feely. And for the five, the touchy-feely types irritate them because they tend to be strictly in their heads. Um, They are thinking types more than any of the nine types. And so they get irritated by the very thing that they need to get more in touch with their feelings, but also more connected to their bodies. So they need the touchy-feely types, even though they resist it. And when they get in touch with their body and with their feelings, they really start to find that polish that Rumi was talking about. And then for the six. 
sometimes the irritation for them can be compliments. They're not sure that they trust compliments, especially from people that they don't know. But if they can learn to be open-hearted and receive compliments and start to trust other people and trust the world, there's where they find growth. And so letting go of that irritation of compliments can be really important for the six on their pathway to growth. And for the seven, they are often irritated by boredom, by stillness, by being grounded in one place. But for the seven, this is the healing medicine that they need. This is actually where they become polished. And so letting go of the need for constant adventure and ideas and what's next and learning to be still and embrace the present moment, that is medicine for the seven. And for the eight, what they struggle with in terms of what irritates them is weakness. Weakness in themselves and weakness in others. They don't like being vulnerable and sometimes it can be hard when they're around other people who are very comfortable with sharing their vulnerability. But for the eight, when they let go of that need to be strong and powerful and find the gift in vulnerability, that's when they begin to be polished. And for the nine, sometimes they are a little bit miffed by people who are loud and expressive. They're more comfortable with people who stay off the radar, who are easygoing, who accommodate others. But when they realize that actually they need to be more like the people who irritate them, who are loud and expressive, they need to share their feelings of anger. They need to speak their voice. When they realize the very people who irritate them offer them the very healing medicine they need, they grow. And so circling back to Rumi's words, if you are irritated by every rub, how will you ever be polished? Maybe take a moment to think about what irritates you and how can you let that go so that you can grow and be polished. Namaste. Namaste.